Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that all the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Simon. Good evening, everybody. And if I can add my own welcome to that that Andy and Katie gave earlier. My name's Jonathan G. I'm the vicar here. You are extremely welcome if you're here for the first time. We're thinking tonight about facing opposition and especially facing opposition because we are following God and doing, trying to follow, do life his way. Now, you may be a very new Christian or just exploring Christian faith. The glorious good news is you're adopted into God's family. Jesus, your Lord, is the Lord of lords and King of kings. The bad news is you make a new enemy. The devil is not pleased and will attack and try to destroy your faith. We don't need to worry because God is far greater. But we do need to be aware there's that opposition. It may be you're the only Christian in your family and you may face ridicule or the only Christian in your workplace or your halls. uh, And you may well uh, get attacked for your Christian faith. That seems that Christians seem to be fair game in our, in our day and age for being attacked for what we believe. It may be you're leading God's people, a Bible study group, a whole church, a school, a new project. Trying to get anything going in the kingdom of God faces opposition. Uh, so wherever your situation is, the Christian life is full of blessings, but also there are battles. And there are things we can learn from the great heroes of the past. Now, when we face opposition, some Christians just go to pieces. Uh, They may have thought they were doing really well, but as soon as there's difficulty, they realize they're not doing as well as they thought they were. Some Christians put up the walls and grow bitter and go within. But God allows these things to happen. I think one of the reasons is for us to discover what needs attention. And if we give attention to what's weak in ourselves and keep on trusting God we can grow stronger in our faith and make progress. Jesus himself faced opposition in the wilderness and all of us will. So I'm going to lead in prayer that God will speak to us now and that he will draw the parallels between whatever you're facing uh, and what was going on in Nehemiah's day. So let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we praise you that we live in your wonderful world. And we thank you for revealing the good news of Jesus to us, that there is forgiveness through him, that we can be adopted into your family and know you as our heavenly father, that you put your Holy Spirit within us. 
But we know too that we face opposition, that uh, Christians and the world around us don't believe the same things about so many fundamental issues, that there is a spiritual force of evil trying to bring us down. So send your Holy Spirit on us tonight, on me as I speak, on all of us as we listen to what you are saying through the scriptures, by your spirit, and give us grace to trust you and follow you in whatever we're facing, and we ask it in your great name. Amen. So let me recap where we were up to three weeks ago. Many of you were still on your long summer holidays. Uh, not nearly long enough, you students, I know, but there does come a time when you have to come back and do some work. It's very tough. Uh, so three weeks ago, we started the book of Nehemiah. We've had a pause for the last couple of weeks while we've thought about creation and climate Sunday and how we can live in God's world. Uh, but three weeks ago, I introduced Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived about 500 years before Jesus, 2,500 years ago. He was a Jew living in the Persian Empire. He was the cupbearer to the king, the emperor, who was the kind of ruler of the known world at that time, a very senior, trusted uh, civil servant, if you like, who would have led the king's household. Now, the Jewish people had been exiled from Jerusalem uh, at least 100 years before, around about 600 BC. They'd been taken to Babylon. Babylon had been overrun by the Persians 70 years later. Some of the Jews had gone back to Jerusalem and others had stayed in Persia. And the ones that went back to Jerusalem had rebuilt the temple, but it was a bit smaller. And they'd started rebuilding the walls, but that had all come to a stop. The current emperor had said no, the walls were fallen down, there was rubble, and the people of God were downtrodden and in disgrace. And this news came to Nehemiah. Now, news took three months by camel to get there. They didn't have texting or email, so it didn't come very often. But he heard that the people of God were in disgrace. And the walls were broken down. And something stirred in him to do something about this. He prayed for two or three months. He thought. And then he asked the king for permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to be the governor there. And the king gave him permission, gave him letters of safe conduct, sent some army with him, and off he's gone. So that's where we were three weeks ago. And uh, if you were here three weeks ago and you weren't listening, that's what we did three weeks ago. Uh, and this is where we are. Uh, We'll put all the references up on the, on the screens. If you want to follow them through, there are Bibles by all the pillars, and we're round about page 485. So when Nehemiah got back to Jerusalem, uh, the people who were opposing the Jews were not pleased. Uh, so chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Let's put this up. So this is the middle of him asking the king. I'll, I'll pick it up, three lines from the bottom there. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests... So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And later on in that chapter from verse 17, uh, this is Nehemiah saying, I said to the, the people in Jerusalem, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told the people about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. 
the people said, let's start rebuilding. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, you'll get to know this one quite well uh, as we go through Nehemiah, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this they're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So he came back, they started building, and the opposition was there from the start. Now we are going to do an overview of chapters 4 to 6. We just had nine verses. I didn't make Simon read three whole chapters. They would have read it brilliantly. Simon's an actor, and he could have, done, he could have pulled it off. Um, but it's a, I encourage you to read the book of Nehemiah. It's not very long. It's like his journal. You find out what happened. You find his prayers through it. Some of them have got quite a lot of oomph behind them. But you find he's, he's trying to follow God and rebuild the people. Uh, and it's a, a wonderful story. And he faced all sorts of opposition. Opposition from without. Opposition from inside the people. And personal threats. So let's look at them. The first thing, I've got six things here that he faced. First one was ridicule, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. It's ridicule. If you stand up for Jesus, you will face some ridicule. What did Nehemiah do? Well, it hurts. It hurts to be thought you're soft in the head. It hurts to be accused of bigotry. It hurts to face ridicule. You know it's not true. The old uh, sort of poem when I was growing up, sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never harm me, is rubbish. Words can harm us very deeply. Uh, playground ridicule can go deep in us. I remember being ridiculed for my... I had bright, curly ginger hair when I had any. I hated it because I was ridiculed for it. I loved it when it fell out. Thank you, Lord, it's gone. Uh, but, I was, that, but actually, that hurts. And there's parts of me still processing all of that. You might have faced different ridicule for different things. It's easy to doubt yourself when you're ridiculed. You come to faith in Jesus and you get ridiculed. Oh, well, maybe have I got this right? It happens. What did Nehemiah do? Well, he prayed. Uh, let's carry on, verses 4 and 5 of our chapter. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. It's the best thing to do straight away, is bring it straight to the Lord. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder to a land of captivity. This is feisty prey. God can always say no to some of the bits that aren't right. But he's just bringing, the point is, he's bringing it to God, how he's really feeling. If you've ever read the Psalms, it's full of real... Don't pretend, oh Lord, everything is wonderful, when it's not. Tell him how it really is. Bring it to God. And they got on with building the wall, verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Some opposition you just need to ignore to pray and keep going. That was ridicule. Then he faced threats. Uh, we'll pick up from verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. The people worked with all their heart. 
But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. So there are threats and the people are really afraid. And they're not just afraid, but they're tired. They've been working hard. Chapter 3 gives a list of all the people building the wall, mostly people near where they lived, trying to get the bit where they lived really good, so it was all good the whole way around. And they're exhausted. They've rebuilt half of it. Now, when you're tired and you're threatened, it's very easy to give up. What do you do? What do you do? Well, again, Nehemiah prays. But this time he doesn't ignore the threat. He does something about it. So we'll pick it up, uh, verse 13. Be down. I've skipped a couple of references there, Daniel. I think there we go. It's very hard for whoever's on projection when I'm preaching. I give a whole load of references, and then sometimes I do them in a different order or I miss some. So it's doing well. But what did he do? I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. But Nehemiah kept on being aware of this. He knew that there were threats. He knew they were credible. And from that point on, he divides the people into two, some doing the work and others guarding. So from verse 16 of chapter 4, we get this. Have we got 16 to 23 there, Daniel, or did I not give you that one? Perhaps, so why don't we just skip over that one? Because the sermon could be very long otherwise. He, did, he, did, he posted a guard, and half of, them, half of them guarded and half of them worked. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, the third thing he faced, he's got ridicule, he's got threats and exhaustion. Now he faces internal division and conflict among the people, among the Jews. So chapter 5 from verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. This is really difficult. The people, they have to work to rebuild the wall, but they haven't then got time to go and get food. Some of them have run out of money. Others of them are so poor, they've sold their children into slavery for money some to the rich Jews. So internal problems, 
in a team, in a church, in a family, can be far more destructive than external ones. Sometimes external problems get us to rally together. Internal ones can be really difficult. In churches, they can be over relatively small things or deeply significant things. They can be over style of music, or they can be over doctrine that, abs- that really matters. Uh, but how do we face this? There was obviously some substance to this. It was to do with money and justice. They need to build the wall, but they need food. And it's absolutely wrong to have to sell your children into slavery to be able to eat. And some rich Jews were getting richer at the expense of the poor ones. Nehemiah, what does he do about this? First of all, he's really cross. Uh, and that's good. It's a righteous anger. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Jesus got angry at injustice. There is a righteous anger. And he deals with it by some straight talking with the leaders. Let's read on from verse 7. After he's thought for a bit. Always good to think before you just open your mouth. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest, which was banned in the law of Moses. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and I said, as far as possible, we've bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let's stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and the interest you're charging them. 1%, gosh, if only we only had to pay 1% these days, but this was bad news for them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they'd promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they'd promised. So he deals with this one by some pretty straight talking and getting an agreement from the people that they're going to pull together and not pull in different directions. I won't read the next bit, Daniel, but it... In the next bit, he demonstrates servant leadership. He keeps working round the clock. He doesn't have the food he could have as governor. He shares his food with everybody, and he's in it with everybody else. Real servant leadership. The next challenge they face in chapter 6 is compromise. So chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, so it's up to full height now, though up to that time I'd not set the doors in the gates, so it's not secure, obviously you can get through any empty gateway. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. I remember learning this in the Sunday school. Uh, They said, come and meet us on the plane of Ono, but I said, oh no. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. You remember some of these things, don't you? They stick with you for a long time. So Tobiah and Sambal, they weren't really interested in talks. They just wanted to stop the work. 
And sometimes we will be distracted, not by ridicule, not by threats, but just uh, compromises, distractions, just stop doing. And it'll all sound very reasonable. Now, some things it's absolutely right to sit down and talk through. But sometimes we just have to get on and do what God's called us to do and say, I'm really sorry, I haven't got time for that. And that's why we need to sort of pray these things through and discern where should we sit and talk where should we get on with the work? And it's really difficult. If I sat down and talked with everybody who asked me to, I'd never get anything done. But equally, if you don't sit down and talk with the people you should, then things fall apart. So we need discernment on this one. Uh, it's a danger in any organisation, absolute danger for the Church of England, to keep talking forever and do nothing. Uh, that's a wider danger. danger. Danger for a British society as well. So we need to be clear what God's calling us to and not be distracted. Uh, then he faces, fifthly, personal slander. Chapter 6, from verse 5 to 9. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. In other words, let's show this to anybody along the way. Look at what letter I'm taking. Let everybody see this. In which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. So it must be that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and that's why you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. You've even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, the one in Persia. So come, let's meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you say is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So this slander, Nehemiah was not setting himself up as king. He'd come to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we'll see later on, he goes back to serve the king uh, in Persia for a number of years. But this slander was enough. They're doing anything to try and get him distracted. How did he deal with it? He keeps praying. He refutes it and he carries on. Last thing he faces is direct personal intimidation from verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let's close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Should someone like me go into the temple to save his life, I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me, so I would commit a sin by doing this, and they'd then give me a bad name to discredit me. Nehemiah was not a priest. He shouldn't have spent time in the inner bits of the temple locking himself away. Had he done that, he could easily have been discredited. But this direct intimidation comes to try and get him to do something that's not right. The devil still uses these tactics. Sometimes it's over busyness. Sometimes it's direct opposition. Sometimes it's internal issues. See all three in the book of Acts. And you will face opposition in your Christian walk. You will face it trying to grow anything as a Christian leader. How do we handle this? Uh, just have a minute to think. You introverts, be quiet for a minute. You extroverts, talk to the person next to you so you can think. And just say, talk to the person next to you about how does this connect? 
just how does this connect with where you are? So just a one-minute buzz to talk or to think, whichever you find more helpful. How does this connect? What are you thinking about? It's only, I'm only giving you a minute, so you need to be quick. Great apologies to any extroverts sitting on their own because they won't be able to think, or any introverts who are sitting by the extroverts either side because you won't be able to think. There we are, let's come back. There's all these different opposition that comes, and we will face it for different ways. Let's sum up how Nehemiah handled it. The first thing he does is prayer continually through this book. We find him turning to God in prayer. For example, chapter 4, verse 4. Ah, that's Ephesians 4, verse 4. No, that's got... We're getting to that later. <laughs> Not to worry. <laughs> so I turned to God and prayed. We got, have, we, have we got these ones from Nehemiah, or are they all from Ephesians there? There we are, Nehemiah 4 there. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Chapter 4, verse 9. We prayed to God and we posted a guard day and night. Chapter 6, verse 9. They were trying to frighten us, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Chapter 6, verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they've done. Remember the prophet Noadia and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. God, he brings it back to God. The prayers are very real. Where people are opposing him, he realized they're opposing the God whose servant he is. And he brings it all to God and prays. When you are facing opposition, lift your eyes to the Lord and get others to pray with you. There is tremendous power in united prayer. We encourage everybody to be in triplets or formations or small groups or prayer partnerships. If you're on your own, it's easy for the evil one to pick you off. Uh, we need each other. And Nehemiah prays and he gathers people to pray. Secondly, he does all he can to maintain the unity of God's people. So here is a reference from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, where St. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is a one, when we are united before God in prayer together, there is a tremendous power in it. It's a lovely psalm, we won't read it tonight, Psalm 133 that says, where God's people dwell in unity, there the Lord commands his blessing." So we need to work at unity. Whenever there's disruption or niggles, we need to do all we can to say sorry for our part in it, to give forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness, to offer it, to help reconciliation. It's not easy. The closer we get, the more we tread on each other's toes and the more we annoy each other. So <laughs> there's plenty of opportunities for forgiveness. But when we're together, we can do so much more. This is the time of year we've been watching the geese fly overhead as they migrate. I love them in those V shapes. The scientists tell us the geese can fly 70% further by the V 
the one at the point is taking all the work, the ones behind get an uplift and they don't have to fly quite so hard and they take it in turn to, to fly point and they honk to encourage each other and it, it's just encouraging. It won't be long, to have a few more months and we'll get the snow. Now snowflakes on their own are pathetic but a whole lot of them together can stop the traffic. And you may feel that we are, you're pathetic on your own. I feel that often. But together, what we can do is wonderful. And what Nehemiah gets the people to do is amazing. Uh, thirdly, practical action. Nehemiah doesn't just pray and doesn't just talk. He always gets on. I prayed to God and I set a watch sort of thing. We post a guard and we set a watch. We gather people together and we get them to sign up to something. Uh, so there's very clear practical action. Uh, there's our part, there's God's part. We don't just sit back and pray, but nor do we just act without prayer. Uh, he's very courageous. He talks, there's some clear talking. This is the fourth thing, clear thinking and straight talking. One of the dangers of being British at this season in our history is we can be very nice and not quite say everything that ought to be said. The sort of, we can do 90% of the conversation, but the last 10% that ought to be said, we often wimp out of, because we don't want to upset people. And there are times we have to be very clear. You remember this, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, we looked at this. When I heard their outcry, I was very angry. I pondered in their mind and I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your people interest. He does some straight talking. Or chapter 6 and verse 4. Uh, when he was, uh, when they said, "Come to the plane of oh no," each I said, "Oh no, I'm doing great work," and each time I gave the same answer. Or chapter six and verse eight, uh, I sent the reply: "Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up." So there are times for just some clear, straight talking. And fifthly, he sets a wonderful example. I don't think we read this. Chapter four, verse twenty-three. Did we get? Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off their clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. They were there at the heart of it. Previous governors, we read, had sort of lived it up in the governor's house and eaten the food. They, he shared the food. He was there working. And the result, chapter 6, verses 15 to 16, is amazing. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days, less than two months. It's astonishing what they did when all the enemies heard about this all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God they could not have done it on their own in our whole vision document as a church there's something that says we long for God to do things here that cannot be explained by just human means and as we pray and as we work together, as we get involved, as Katie said, whether it's volunteers with the children or the light party or whether it's practical stuff as you get involved in your workplaces and on campus. And in, uh, God, it's amazing what God can do. So what is God calling you to do? Nehemiah was absolutely clear about what God had called him. It took him a few months to get that clarity. That's what we were thinking about three weeks ago. Once he was clear, he didn't get distracted. He didn't let anything stop him. He kept doing what God had called him to do. So I want to lead in prayer that if you're not sure what God would have you do, that he gives you some clarity. And if you are clear, that he gives you courage and all you need to do it. Let's stand and we'll pray that. Perhaps the band would come back ready to lead us in our last song. 
praise you, Lord, for what you enabled Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem to do all those years ago, for the walls to be rebuilt in 52 days with all that opposition, exhaustion, rubble, conflict. We praise you that you are the God for whom nothing is impossible, the God of the resurrection who brought Jesus back from the dead. And we pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit down on your church in this nation again and here at St. Paul's in particular and give us courage to live for you in our workplaces, in our homes, at university, in our streets, in the organizations we're part of, among our friends. Give us fresh confidence in you. We pray for all those called to lead different ministries. Give them clarity and courage and grace. We pray for those new to Christian faith, those learning that there is spiritual opposition that comes our way. Give grace and use it to grow us stronger. And we pray for all of us that you give clarity about what you would have us be involved in. Let's just take a moment. In the stillness, Holy Spirit, you might want to put things in our minds. Either we're trying to do too much and we need to let some things go, or there's something you'd have us get involved in. Let's just be still. <laughs> 